there are a lot of people around the world that want better money. Billions of people want better money. And that that's not a small market. Even if it's just gold, if it's, if it's gold that's available to everybody on a smartphone, that can be twice gold, 10 times gold. This episode of Empire is brought to you by QuickNode. QuickNode is an end-to-end blockchain development platform that makes building Web3 apps super easy. No matter what you want to build, you can effortlessly develop any application by leveraging their Elastic APIs. Go to quicknode.com, use code Empire. You'll get a free month on their feature-backed build plan. That's right. Go to quicknode.com. You'll get a free month to start playing around. You'll hear more about QuickNode later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Quenta the premier derivatives platform on Optimism that offers deep liquidity, low fees, and up to 50x leverage across 24 different assets. You'll hear more about Quenta later in the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to Empire. We have uh, two guests who need no introduction today, Lynn Alden and Jordi Alexander. Lynn, Jordi, welcome to Empire. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Yeah, yeah, excited, excited you guys are here. Basically, we wanted to do this episode because uh, th- things on Bitcoin and like Bitcoin uh, world seems crazier than it's been in, in many, many years. I think there are a lot of folks out there looking for kind of what I'd call credible opinions and credible information on the future of Bitcoin in general. To frame this conversation, there's this debate on Bitcoin's block space that is kind of what I'd call divided the Bitcoin community. And it first sparked in February with the rise of ordinals. It's now been revived with the emergence of the BRC20 asset class. Um, both creations were made possible uh, by this thing called the Taproot upgrade back in November 2021. Uh, and because of ordinals and now BRC20 tokens, uh, Bitcoin transaction fees have spiked. Uh, they're up 35x in the last 30 days. Uh, BTC block 788695 marked this historic moment in which transaction fees exceeded the mining subsidy. Um, and so Lynn and, and Jordi, and maybe Lynn, I could just pick on you to go first here. would love to get your just like very high level framework for how you're viewing Bitcoin today and like viewing what has happened the last several months in, in Bitcoin land. Sure. Um, so, you know, when I analyze Bitcoin over the course of years and, and with determining whether or not it's an investable asset, one of the things I covered was the long term fee, um, you know, model, the incentive structure, uh, you know, the security of the network. Um, I actually wrote an article about it over two years ago. Um, and one of the things I mentioned was that there there could be use cases we don't see right now um, that might emerge in the future for demanding block space other than just transactions. There's already been, you know, I covered the ones that there's there's been ones in the past and, you know, they kind of come in waves um, and this is the latest wave. And so we never really know exactly what the market is going to determine the best use of block space for. Um, you know, when we scheduled this discussion, it was about Bitcoin security, uh, and that was in a pretty low fee environment. Um, and you know, during that time, there are a lot of um, critics of Bitcoin saying, you know, the fees are too low; it's going to be insecure in the long term as the block subsidy goes down. And now you see a lot of critics cu- kind of coming out of the woodwork because you have a fee spike, and they're saying, look, Bitcoin's unusable; the fees are too high. And it's like, well. You know, it, it's like it, it's funny how quickly narratives can change. Sometimes from the same people, sometimes from different people. Um, and so, you know, the way I view it is that this is this is the market at work, right? So right now, there's a, a big new speculative use case. Uh, you know, as of as of this talk, and this could this could change in in minutes, hours, or days. But right now, the fee spike's already subsided for the most part. I mean, it spiked up to like thirty dollars a transaction. It's down to like three dollars a transaction. You know, maybe they'll get a second or third wind. We'll see how this goes. I mean, this is something that has to be evaluated over time. But these are these are not, you know, at the moment at least, not very useful assets. 
Um, they're really kind of speculation oriented, meme oriented. Bitcoin purposely doesn't really have the type of base layer programmability that say something like Ethereum does. Um, and so there's, there's not a ton of kind of long-term sustainability of what we're seeing right now. And that kind of inherently speculative action kind of exhausts itself because there's only so much capital they have to pay for fees to kind of play these games. And they only have so many followers that they can kind of uses excellent liquidity in this kind of big speculation pump and dump. Um, and so I, I think, you know, s some of the critics of the network are overreacting. And I also think that some of the proponents of Bitcoin, some of the you know, so-called Bitcoin maxis that are kind of knee-jerk reaction to want to like, mm. you know, censor this or change this and, and, and kind of censor it right away. I think that's also a problem. I, I think these things have to play out. I think the fee market is going to sort it out over time. And then, of course, users and devs can always, you know, assess the network over the very long term and see what kind of minor consensus uh, changes might be useful for the network over time. Kind of like SegWit and Taproot, you know, I'm sure there will probably be a couple more in the future to optimize the network as best as possible. But I, th I think it's in a healthy state. I think it's doing what it's supposed to do. Jordy, there's kind of two camps here. There's like, there's camp one, which might be. Um described as like Bitcoin's block space and security is purpose built for BTC, the, the asset and nothing else. And that Bitcoin's elegance is its simplicity and that it's just like its app specificness of digital gold. And then there's camp two, which is like Bitcoin is this permissionless platform uh, where it's use case and will and should be driven by free market forces. And it's cool that we have innovation happening on it. And like, you know, maybe Bitcoin, like DeFi on Bitcoin comes comes to Bitcoin, and that's a cool and exciting thing. Where where, where do you fall out? Which which one of these camps do you fall into? Um, you know, I see I see both sides. I'm kind of in the middle. I think that it's all about social consensus. Everything about Bitcoin, looked at from a, just a pure technology lens or a pure monetary lens, is uh, incorrect in my opinion. Like the social lens is the most important thing, and the value of Bitcoin is just kind of the coordination value and the social construct of it. So when it comes to things like this and other things that Bitcoin maxis get irritated about, um, it's because they have, they've attached certain social constructs that are not necessarily like in the code or need to be in the code or, are you know, it's kind of the story that they tell themselves. And um, when, when you see them going against Ethereum, for example, they want to, you know, say how Ethereum has all these shit coins and it's, uh, it's a lot of speculation. And then when it happens on Bitcoin, then, you know, it, it, it looks very uh, negative for what they used to say. So they have to kind of go against it just by default, right? Um, I'm very neutral on whether like this is good or bad in terms of like whether it solves the long-term security. Um, I think we're very far from that. And, um, you know, in, in, in a way, like it shows some possibilities and kind of what Lynn said, like, you know, we don't know in the future use cases and things can come up. Um, but, you know, we can go too far on this thesis. We can say that right now we're not helping long-term security by having like a, you know, temporary speculative bubble on, you know, some uh, coins that are built or some NFTs. It's not actually going to solve the problem in 20 years. The problem is not even now. Like no one's complaining about, um, you know, the blocks now. We're not even uh, into the next halvening. So um, the, the problem still remains because we don't know if in 20, 30 years people will still be minting uh you know, uh, new coins on, on the Bitcoin chain or whether they'll keep wanting to use block space for digital art or, or, or if, even if the community will allow that. Because like you said, there's a lot of people who want to censor it. So, um, yeah, I, I'm kind of in the middle on all of this. 
Yeah. Lynn, do you fall into one, one, one or the other of these camps or would you be, are you similar to Jordy kind of falling in the middle here? Kind of in the middle. I think the current design is elegant. Uh, I think it hits the sweet spot where, you know, it, it's mostly for transactions as the original intent of the network. But, you know, Satoshi also put arbitrary text into the Genesis block. Uh, you know, it, it's been a feature uh, from early on um, that it can be used for other things as well. Uh, small bits of information that have various use cases, either aesthetic or functional. Um yeah, and you know, I think it's good that Bitcoin does not have uh, you know more sophisticated programming on the base layer. That opens up all sorts of complexity, extra attack vectors, um, higher requirements for running a node generally. So I, I, I think it's good that it's not further in that direction. Um, but I also think it's good that there's a foot in the door to use the the you know the base layer for other things as well. And you know, the way I would phrase it is that Bitcoin so far is like the most decentralized immutable database that people have built. Um, I think the, the killer app for that is money. Um, that doesn't mean it's the only um, app for that. Uh, I think that's the one that can price other things out of the long term or at least, you know, be a dominant use case. Um, but there could be other high value use cases for that, you know, securing um, other things uh, with a lot of economic density, uh, putting in key pieces of useful information that you really want to pay for the immutability for. Um, and, you know, when it comes to the long term kind of fee expectation, I, I think the long-term thing that most of these have in common is that it's about adoption, right? So, you know, basically Bitcoin can do roughly the number of transactions that Fedwire can, which is the, basically the base layer for the U.S. financial system. Uh, uh, that network um, settles literally one quadrillion dollars in gross value per year, um, which is like, sounds like a typo, but it's not. Um, and And so, you know, Obviously, the average transaction size when you have that few transactions and that much settlement volume is in seven figures for Fedwire. Uh, Bitcoin's obviously still much smaller, even though you know it's roughly the same kind of size in terms of parameters. It's basically an open source decentralized Fedwire, you know, kind of with gold combined into it, uh, like its own its own bare asset. Um, and I think that's it's. I think it's serving its purpose. Uh, I think the combination of you know primarily being used for for settlements transactions long-term storage of, of kind of global portable value um, is serving that use case. And I think it's exciting that there are other things that people can use it for. I think that, the, you know, the current iteration of speculative meme coins that people dump on their followers is not attractive. Um, but, you know, there, there's long been a, a desire to, you know, either, you know, connect other, other blockchains to it or put in valuable information that people want to exist into the future. I, I think those are valid use cases. And I think that, you know, whatever people are willing to pay for um, over the long term determines what is what is attractive use of block space. Hmm. I think underpinning a lot of this is is this thing that you, you two have uh, both mentioned a couple of times here is the secu the secured the long term, not one to two years, but many, many, many decades, like the potential security issue um, of Bitcoin. And I think there might be some folks uh, who are not familiar with that. So Lynn, can you maybe set up this conversation and maybe frame this in turn by talking about potentially the bear case actually for Bitcoin? Um, and like the, the, the argument that Bitcoin security will, will eventually fail. Um, can you maybe set, set us up by talking about what that is and then we can walk back from there? Sure. So as most people know, Bitcoin has a capped supply of 21 million coins. Every four years, the number of new coins generated per block uh, gets cut in half. And so that asymptotically approaches uh, zero. Um, within a decade or two, that becomes very, very minuscule. 
um, you know, more than 90% of Bitcoin have already been mined. So the, the last 10% long tail um, is still being mined. And so the, you know, the long-term expectation from the beginning, uh, even in, in Satoshi's own words, was that fees would eventually, um, you know, uh, be the, the primary and eventually only source of, of revenue for Bitcoin miners, uh, which is important for the long-term immutability and censorship resistance of the network. And so the bear case is basically to say that Bitcoin block space is not going to be attractive in the long term, that even though it's a pretty small and tight block space, uh, that even that, you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now will be unattractive enough that people want to uh, substantially pay uh, a, a significant amount um, on a per transaction basis in order to settle value there or, or to do other things, you know, documents, you know, um, securing other chains, whatever whatever they might be using that block space for, that that'll be unattractive either in general or compared to other chains, and that therefore Bitcoin will be open to very, you know, kind of lower cost censorship attacks um, that, that would impede it. Now, now, personally, I don't agree with that view, but I think it's a question worth exploring, and it's something that I explored when determining whether or not Bitcoin is an investable asset over the long term, you know, my, my kind of you know, long-term analysis of the network. It is it is a question that has to be explored. And the way I would phrase it, I, th I think there are some honest actors that raise the question um, and that they've, they've reached, a, reached a conclusion that they're skeptical of the long-term security. Um, but I also think there are a lot of other people that kind of, for lack of a better word, FUD the network to kind of promote another coin that they might have more affiliation or stake in and that not all the arguments are, are genuine around that topic. Yeah. And I would also point out that we I, I want to bring it up later at least, um, that you know, other blockchains that claim to fix their own security model have their own security flaws in terms of of kind of the long term sustainability. That it's worth comparing to when we're determining what what is actually a viable security model. Hmm. Jordy, you tweeted at us. Um, I think actually that might be how this episode came to be many months ago when it got kept getting pushed on the calendar. But you said I agree with Jason and Santi that the time to discuss solutions to Bitcoin security uh, model is now not in 10 years, though Nick Carter's right, we may need to see the whites of the enemy's eyes before a fix. Um, why, why, why is it so important to discuss this right now? So two reasons. Uh, one, you know, both Lynn and I are from the macro world. Uh, I guess she's a, she's a kind of deep researcher and a, a very active trader in that world. And uh, we're in a very unique time right now where uh, potentially the dollar starts being looked at and re-examined in many ways. And Bitcoin is one of those things like gold, you know, that is potentially going to be able to ride that um, into like a new social consensus internationally. So there's this huge opportunity for Bitcoin right now. And one of the lingering concerns and, um, you know, that, that I think need to be examined, just like Lynn said that for, she, for herself, she examined it and, you know, she, she went into that rabbit hole, but it's a lot of work to do that. And, um, you know, people can come also come up with different uh, beliefs once they do that. And I think if we really want there to be a huge adoption to an alternative to the fiat system that could potentially be Bitcoin, um, which I think is probably the best suited out of digi digital currencies for that role, if we're going to have that role. Uh, but there is a huge concern of like what happens in, you know, 20 years, apart from this blip that we've had now with like the huge um, fees it's just been trending down very aggressively in terms of like the, the fee uh, income. And the way to think about it is just, you know, you have to pay security guards to protect you uh, when you, you know, you have something valuable, right? 
And if you start paying them less and less, a lot of them don't show up for work. And then if like in 20 years, you, you keep paying them half their wages every four years. Um, now, obviously, like, you know, the, the price of Bitcoin can go up and make up for some of that, but it can't go up 2x every four years in, in real terms, you know, just mathematically. So uh, at some point, like there has to be some kind of income. Um, otherwise, people don't show up to protect the network. And if they don't show up to protect the network, then, you know, for different reasons, uh, especially if this is an asset that grows to be like, you know, many trillions of dollars, you can have state actors or other actors coordinate, um, you know, buy a bunch of ASICs or whatever is going to be the technology at the time to start, um, you, you know, spamming the network or blocking or censoring the network or let's not even go down the kind of double spend route. Let's just kind of look at it as just purely like making it unworkable. Like, you know, they just can't, uh, you, you can't really kind of get blocks in, uh, get proper transactions through, making it unusable. There, there's different things that a, an actor could, could right. try to do. Um, so I think it's really important that in advance of all that happening, we have some, at least some backup plans um, in place. And the problem with humans is like, we only like want to react in like what's immediately in front of us. Like with global warming, you know, it's like this like huge time lag of decades and people don't take it seriously until crazy events start happening with the weather. Um, and that's kind of like the part of the comment about like, sometimes you have, you have to like see it as humans, we need to like see it like imminently coming. And um, so, yeah, I'm not sure if there's going to be enough consensus until, until mm. we see it. Yeah. When you look at what's happening right now, actually, both of you, I'd be really curious about this. So like, I think you both are saying that we have to move to a model where um, uh, Bitcoin gradually shifts from paying miners primarily through Bitcoin block rewards today. We're going to move to a model where we have to pay the miners primarily through Bitcoin transaction fees. When you look at what's happening today with like, hold, let me let me pull up this number. What's the, the number of BRC20 tokens on the network is now 14 thousand if this number is even i think this number is correct um you've got like ordinals um and like i mean the influx of these projects has, has pushed uh the transaction fees to a multi-year peak if i if why i think y charts is showing it around like uh let's see transaction fees have skyrocketed to like 19 bucks um which is about an 800 percent jump compared to the same time last year when you look at all of this that's happening maybe lynn i'll throw it to you first like does this seem like the is this like the early inklings of the solution here, um, or are you like this is not this is not we're not going in the right direction here? So the sure I think this is a speculative um, you know exploration of it. I think this you know the combination of SegWit and Taproot opened up some some different use cases that were not present before. Um, although the you know there's long been the ability to put arbitrary. Um, information at the blockchain, so that's kind of being ex you know kind of used or exploited uh, in meaningful size for the first time. Um, so that's kind of new information that the market can sort out. Um, you know, the one thing I would say is that we don't have to move to a fee model. The, the model's already in place, and so there's no like action to be done. It's whether or not the block space will be valuable in the future. And mm -hmm. the way I would phrase it, I think, is that you know so far you know Bitcoin's been around for 14 years. Uh, it's got generally higher adoption over time, uh, obviously comes in cycles. Um, and you know, the longer that Bitcoin keeps working and keeps doing what it does and it keeps being functional and keeps being understood by more and more people, um, you know, I expect that adoption to increase. You know, if, if Bitcoin adoption or, or really the, the adoption of any blockchain were to stagnate at current levels, 
it become it would become long term, you know, probably insecure. Uh, mm. Now, so the premise of most of these models uh, relies on more adoption than the current number, which is still a very small percentage of the world population, um, especially when you actually look at meaningful adoption. So not just buying a token on Coinbase and and just having it there in you know five hundred dollars or something, like actually interacting with the blockchain. Um, uh, in more involved ways, either directly or just, you know, just, you know, more interesting ways is a very, very, very low number. Um, and I'd also point out that most of these kind of minor updates to Bitcoin over time specifically were to try to make block space more efficient to use. So SegWit was, was kind of a shadow block size increase. Um, that was kind of the main function. It also enabled lightning. Um, and then Taproot was also, um, you know, it had some various privacy and efficiency gains uh, to add on to that. And so we've not partly why we've not seen a meaningful fee market develop is because we've had the expansion onto partially other layers, but also just more efficient uses of the block space we already have. Um, we see exchanges using batching uh, more than they used to. And so whenever there's kind of this uh, fee pressure, eventually there's kind of a response. Now, I think that a lot of the low-hanging fruit has already been addressed. Um, and so to the extent that adoption goes up another twofold, fivefold, tenfold over the next 10, 20 years, I think that will result in more sustained fee pressure um, over time. And then we also mm -hmm. have to take into account that this is a dynamic system. So for example, if the network is not under attack, um, then fees are mainly determined just by how many fees want to be in the block space compared to how much block space there is. Whereas if the network actually is under attack, um, then fees take on another meaning, which is you know that the chance that your uh, transaction is going to be reorged uh, or to try to incentivize other miners to join the network that are outside of of kind of a you know uh, you know uh, attack group. Um, and so. You know, it, it's not just a static system over time. It's actually a, it, the, the, the way the model's set up, it's inherently a dynamic system with push and pull. And so mm -hmm. that's kind of how I look at it. I, I don't think that this current thing is a solution, but I think it's another data point uh, to see what things blockchains might be used for. And I don't think that meme coins are a long-term solution, but I do think that, you know, transactions are going to be enough uh, in the long term to fill up the block space. And then to, to the extent that they're not, I think there are, are high value uses of arbitrary data that are also going to compete for block space. Jordi, what do you think? Yeah, so I have a, I have a different opinion, and I guess this is why we have this debate um, <laughs> on many things. Uh, so starting with, I mean, the one thing we actually agree is that this is probably not the long-term solution. No matter how many fees get accrued in the next, you know, six months, this is not going to do anything for in 20 years. Like, first of all, you know, this is not like Ethereum where like the fees get burned and somehow this reduces supply. Any extra fees that just get created right now are just, you know, an extra tip to miners and they're going to be happy for a few months, but this is not going to make them, you know, do extra work in, in 10, 20, 30 years. Right. So um, I think uh, Bitcoin does have a, have a bit of a problem and the problem is in the design. Um, I remember when, uh, when this first came up, I asked Lynn and I said, what if Satoshi had said, you know, it's not 21 million, we're going to end up with, you know, 0.5 or 0.25 or some kind of tail emission. Uh, and that was like in the initial design. Wouldn't that actually be better? Because it sort of doesn't allow this thing to go to chance where like, oh, maybe there's going to be use cases. Maybe there's going to be sort of speculative reasons or productive reasons, right? 
Um, and I think I think Lynn agreed. Like, okay, if it was actually set that way, maybe that would be better. Um, and I understand like a lot of Bitcoiners' concern is it's extremely hard to get social consensus on changing something that is like you know hard fork, basically like something fundamentally different. Um, and a lot of people have used this like twenty one million meme. Um, to me, that's um, it's like a misunderstanding of what scarcity is because like gold is scarce, right? And like, and we find new gold every year. There's like a little bit of like, you know, 0.5% inflation of gold just from gold mines every year. Um, that doesn't make it not scarce. Like it's, it's not like you can just print it infinitely. And having a small inflation rate has a, has a huge advantage in many other ways that, you know, people forget, um, including the fact that when you have a cap supply, it's, it's really hard to get new coins, right? Like right now, miners, they have to mine them and then they'll have to sell them to somebody in the free market and somebody buys them and new people have their new coins and it kind of dilutes people who are just free riding. So there's a bit of a free rider problem in Bitcoin, which is um, a huge game theoretic concern. You know, somebody just mm -hmm. buys a lot and then they just sit on it. They don't do anything. They don't even create fees. They, they literally add no value to the network or, or in any way. And they just benefit from kind of like the the squeeze, the, the, the supply squeeze, right? Um, I think, you know, Satoshi's paper, and if you read it, it's, it's just very clear. He's talking about e-cash, right? He, he thinks that this thing is going to be cash. And um, because of maybe he didn't calculate the number of transactions that would actually be needed to be done to, to make it worldwide cash, because, you know, the scale of billions of people using something is, is different than uh, what Bitcoin was built for. If it's not going to be cash, which is, you know, I think people have generally settled on it being more like gold, uh, which is something that you store. You don't kind of go and buy stuff with it. Um, then the number of transactions doesn't really go up. You know, we, we've seen a lot more people this cycle than last cycle uh, using Bitcoin or holding Bitcoin, let's say. Uh, but it hasn't increased the, the actual transactions. So if, if we're going down the gold route, um, I think either tail emission or some other thing might need to happen. So I actually disagree because, for example, even if you just calculate the number of people, if they want to do one monthly transaction uh, on the base chain, let's say to pull coins off an exchange uh, into their own custody, uh, there's not enough block space for even even a significant minority of the world to do that, right? So you know, basically adoption, there's it doesn't take super aggressive adoption um, assumptions um, to fill up the block space even if it's not used as a medium of exchange, even if it's still just a storage mechanism that people occasionally want to um, you know, pull into savings or pull out of savings or make very selective kind of censorship-resistant global payments with. Um, you know, So I, I think it's primarily attractive as a settlement network. Uh, there's all sorts of things that are, are built on top of it currently that can be built on top of it in the future, especially as there's demand or free fee pressure sustained to do so. Um, and so I, th I think that basically the current design is already attractive. And I, I think, again, a lot of people, you know, one of the things that the fiat currency system has is that whenever there's responses to it, that the people running it always want to do changes right away. That's kind of what fiat currency is. That's both the strength of fiat currency and the weakness of fiat currency. And I think it's also kind of what we see in most other cryptocurrencies that basically they're still fairly centralized and they, they can make hard forks and they can, you know, rather small groups of people can kind of make changes and that, you know, you don't really know what it's, what the network's going to look like 10 years from now. And I think what makes Bitcoin attractive is that by design, it's very hard to change. Um, and the long-term scaling is, you know, 
you can make one argument that you know you need tail missions because not enough people are going to want to use block space in the future as just a savings asset. But as I just pointed out, you can make another argument that even the existing block space is going to be super tight, even if just a, a significant percentage of the world wants to use it as occasional interaction for savings. Um, and I think we don't know what the usage of it's going to look like 10, 20, 30 years from now, and that it's already got plenty of flexibility built into it. And when it comes to adoption assumptions, like if you look at Ethereum, uh, for example, or, or similar kind of proof of stake type concepts, you know, if there's not enough demand for Ethereum block space in the future, let's say that the you know the market goes to multiple other chains, it gets diffused across multiple different ecosystems, uh, the speculation dies out, that it goes somewhere else, whatever the case may be, um, then you know the the emission schedule increases. There's no cap supply. Um, if you actually were to have very, very little use to the chain, you'd have a higher inflation rate. And then that would kind of have a feedback loop of making it less attractive to hold. Um, and so you'd have less validators and you have a higher uh, inflation rate. Uh, and so that that basically tailors things around the inflation schedule, whereas Bitcoin uses primarily the, you know, the cap supply, but the reliance on fees. And so there are different security models out there. Uh, but they all actually rely on sustained adoption uh, to kind of a higher degree than exists now, or at least you know, basically that the idea that the current adopt the current level of adoption can be sustained indefinitely. Hmm. Jordan, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, uh, we've seen like a huge increase in adoption of Bitcoin in the last ten years, right? And hasn't shown that people want to do transactions on chain, like. Um, we're already at, I don't know how many people own a physical Bitcoin, but a lot of people have financial interest in Bitcoin, whether it's through an ETF, whether it's through, you know, some financial instrument. Uh, if you go by some estimates, it could be, you know, tens of millions. I don't know. It could even be like hundred million people. Um, and we've, we've seen this go from, you know, thousands to millions of people that that's undisputed. Right. So this like thousand X in in like adoption hasn't really increased the demand for fees. And I think it's because of what I said, like uh, the use case becomes more like gold. And the concern is that once miners stop getting kind of block rewards and they need to do activity on chain in order to hedge them and, you know, do all this kind of transfer them and sell them and all this stuff. Um, you know, People use the money in their checking account, but they don't. They don't do a lot of transactions with your savings account. I don't. I don't know about you, you know, but um, like, if if it's in my savings account, it probably is just sitting there, and I don't think about it much unless like I have I have a you know, an immediate need. Um, yeah. So I mean, I'm optimistic that maybe it's it's enough. Like, I mean, let's just put some numbers on it, right? Like, how much do we actually need to in in U.S. dollars right now, current market market value of dollars? How many would we need to kind of feel safe? That uh, you know, an actor can't just spin up a a, a bunch of uh, factories and, and make enough hardware to uh, to attack. So, I don't know. Let's say it's hard to say. Like you know, twenty billion dollars. Maybe this is an actual kind of global competing currency. Maybe you need hundreds of billions of dollars to to secure it to really kind of feel uh, safe. Um, so that would mean that each person has to spend you know that that much in fees or whatever. Each, each active user needs to spend a couple thousand in fees uh, every year um, to kind of provide that value. That it has to come from somewhere, right? Um, so I, I think it would be more elegant if this was just kind of given out to miners. 
Um, it's a more fair system as well, I think. Um, and to the point about Ethereum, I agree that, yeah, like if, if no one uses it, then <laughs> it's not going to be attractive anyway. So um, it, it'll inflate. And it can, I think the inflation maximum it can go is like 2% or like 2.1 or something like that. Um, obviously, right now it's deflationary because there's activity. Theoretically, if there was no activity, it, it, would, it would start inflating. But I don't think that the 1% or 2% inflation is ever going to be the reason why something gets adopted or doesn't get adopted or is uh, kind of appealing as an asset. And I, I think gold has proven that over thousands of years. Like, that's not the reason why it goes up or down. It's just because somebody, you know, one year there's a slightly higher kind of gold mine, uh, you know, output than, than the previous year. Hmm. I, I, go ahead, Lynn. Yeah, one thing I want to quantify, you know, with 8 billion people in the world, you know, Bitcoin can handle, depending on how efficiently base layer transactions are used in terms of batching and things like that, it's you know, it's limited to tens of millions of transactions per month. And so basically less than, you know, one percentage of the world can use Bitcoin once a month. Um, a couple percentage, you know, a few percentage of the world can use it once a year. Uh, if they're only using it as gold, right? If they're only using it as digital gold, they're not transacting with it. If they're just occasionally pulling it in or out of savings, uh, either on a monthly or yearly basis, a very small percentage of the world can use the the you know the Bitcoin as we know it. Um, and so basically, to have a view that you know, so the past 14 years again, there's been still very low adoption for cryptocurrencies in general. And Bitcoin specifically has made a number of these soft forks that, that increased the basically increased the effective block space and made more efficient use of block space combined with exchanges using batching. So you've had increased adoption but increased efficiency, which which is, and that efficiency has limits, uh, which we're kind of roughly at more or less most likely. Um, and so that really you don't need very aggressive assumptions. You know, if you just assume that five percent of the world in 20 years is going to want to occasionally directly act with a interact with a Bitcoin base layer, then there's going to be at least some degree of sustained fee market. And then, you know, Bitcoin does, it can do, you know, over 100 million transactions a year, um, uh, even more than that in terms of actual payments. So, you know, a transaction on average has, has you know, a couple or few payments associated with it, you know, multiple outputs. Um, and so, you know, for every like $10 average fee, you're talking a billion or two in transaction fees. And so, you know, if a, if a base layer Bitcoin transaction costs $30 in the future, uh, or the equivalent of $30, you know, kind of the, the, the purchasing power that we roughly think of now is $30, uh, you're talking billions and billions of dollars of annual fees for miners, which then, you know, the actual ASIC value of, you know, that you need to buy to even attempt an attack is is in the billions or tens of billions at that point. And you know maybe fees are maybe fees are a hundred dollars per base layer transaction. We don't know, right? Right now, for example, if you want to ship gold around the world in meaningful size, you know, like actually as a settlement, like as a corporate settlement, as a sovereign settlement, things like that, that's going to cost you probably millions of dollars. It took Germany years when they wanted to repatriate their gold from the United States back to Germany, and you literally have to like if you're doing it in bars, if you want to both transport safely and then validate that the gold is real. You then have to like you, you transport it, and then you actually have to melt the bars down pretty much, and then reform them. There's really it, it's really hard to tell that a gold bar is gold to the core without actually melting it. There's a couple other ways that you can kind of know, um, and so that's the system that's been used for a while. It's wildly inefficient, and so the the assumptions that Bitcoin has to meet 
in order to be radically better than that are quite low is how I essentially phrase that. That I think that when you actually quantify it, um, I don't view that as a significant hurdle uh, that Bitcoin has to step over in terms of adoption in order to be sustained and secure 20 years from now. All right, quick break from the show. There is this kind of overused cliche saying in crypto, but it's true. Bear markets are building and everyone tells you that and everyone knows it. What people don't know is that if you're building apps in crypto and building apps in Web3 without using QuickNode, you are building on hard mode. So QuickNode is, is this amazing blockchain development platform. It reduces costs, streamlines the time to market for your app, and it offers consistent performance at scale. For folks that have built apps, you will know that there are a couple key points here. One, QuickNode offers unlimited endpoints across 18 different chains and 35 different networks. They have response times that are two and a half times faster than any of their competitors, 99.99% uptime and a dedicated 24-7 customer support team. If you've been listening to Empire for a while, you might know that I am no gigabrain developer, but I do know a lot of devs and a lot of great product teams at other places. So when I see Coinbase and Twitter and Adobe and OpenSea and Dune Analytics, all leveraging and trusting QuickNode to power their business, that's when we get excited and that's when we want to partner with them. They're the best solution for any leading crypto and Web3 company that is seeking an end-to-end blockchain development platform right out of the box. So my message to you, get off hard mode, let QuickNode handle the blockchain infrastructure, let QuickNode handle the security, let QuickNode handle the performance while you focus on building beautiful products for your users. Visit quicknode.com, super easy. You can use code EMPIRE. You'll get a free month on their build plan. So don't forget to use code EMPIRE. Santi and I got to get credit for this one so they know that we sent you and you will get a first month free. Hope you guys enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by Quenta. Trade smarter with Quenta. Quenta is the premier derivatives trading platform on Optimism that features deep liquidity, low fees, and up to 50x leverage across 24 different assets, all powered by synthetics. If you want to trade crypto, forex, or commodities on-chain, Quenta is the platform for you. It's built for both the casual degen and advanced traders. It offers stop losses, limit orders, cross-margining, and a whole bunch of other advanced order types. And unlike most of today's Web3 products, Quenta has a super easy to use interface, including a position dashboard, charts, and a leaderboard for a seamless experience. Go to quenta.io, that's quenta.io right now. Tell them we sent you, tell them Santi sent you, tell them Yeno sent you, tell them Empire sent you, quenta.io. Hope you guys enjoy. I think at the heart of um, the heart of this entire conversation, it, it's really... It's really money crypto versus tech crypto, which is really the, the the Bitcoin versus the ETH argument, I think you could say. And like, uh, there's this guy Eric Tornberg who has a pretty good article on this, and we can, we can link it in the, link it in the show notes. But um, basically, if you look at money crypto, money crypto maintains the point that crypto uh, cryptocurrencies, uh, the the goal of crypto is to redefine how money works by reintroducing sound money. And specifically, if you get into that, it's it's like with sound money, government governments will now be forced to behave responsibly responsibly because they are no longer able to borrow from tomorrow to finance wars or fund short-term political objectives at the expense of long-term wealth or whatever it may be. And right now we have unsound money, which becomes this compounding problem and Bitcoin introduces sound money. And then you have, um, so that's like money crypto. Then you have tech crypto, which believes that, um, 
which believes that instead of studying Austrian economics, you should study the development of web two and web one uh, to, to understand where this is going. And that um, I think tech crypto kind of subscribes to the narrative that the internet started as this decentralized and open system, and then quickly became concentrated among five players, Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and, and Microsoft. And because of that concentration, they were able to get really addicted users, able to control the attention of their users, monetize their advertising, shamelessly copy people. Um, and that Web3 and crypto has this, has this the, 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 the vision here is like decentralizing that world. And at the heart of like listening to both of you two and then listening to um, just like reading a lot of crypto Twitter recently, the there's like money, you have like money crypto people and tech crypto people talking, not, not, not necessarily you two, but like, I think the main thing is on Twitter right now, you have two different groups talking right past each other. Um, and it's just interesting. It's interesting to hear you two debate. It's interesting to hear Twitter debate. Um, and even like, see, I don't know if you, you guys have been following like uh, what Muneeb is working on with sta like stacks and L like L2s on Bitcoin. And then there's also um, uh, like roll up projects like Rollkit are experimenting using Bitcoin as like this data availability layer and like, or Babylon using Bitcoin's additional security via timestamping to prevent reorgs. It's all this like money crypto people talking with tech, like tech crypto people. And they are, I don't think they will be able to see eye to eye. I don't know if you guys have thoughts on that. There wasn't even a question there, but. I think the money versus tech angle, I think that is, does a lot of work at explaining why these different groups kind of approach this differently. Um, you know, you kind of have the Silicon Valley crowd versus the Austrian crowd for lack of a better way yeah. to describe it. Um, and I, you know, I think one is that the market's big enough for both to some degree, which is that I, I you know, I view one of the biggest addressable problems out there is lack of good money. You know, I mean, there's there's 180 different fiat currencies. They're all basically these local monopolies that have frictions between them. When you look at a global like level, uh, the dollar kind of serves as the glue between them. But that obviously is this kind of you know closed source, permissioned, uh, inflationary base that they all connect with. Um, and so I think that the the money argument is that basically that the one of the you know kind of the you know, hundred trillion dollar problem out there is that there's just not good money, and that there could be better money. And you, one of the arguments is that Bitcoin can serve as that money. Um, the tech view says, okay, there's other things that we can do with this technology as well, or, or adjacent technologies. Uh, you know, an example. I mean, a, a company I work with, uh, you know, was trying to receive an international wire, got held up for like a week. It's an opaque kind of old antiquated system uh they cancel the wire and like reset it and it's kind of like stuck for more days and then it's like could we just use stable coins for this i mean you know and so there there obviously are tech rail layers that can be improved by adjacent types of technology as this um and i think that's a valid argument whether or not they should be actual kind of free-floating blockchains or layers or similar types of distributed ledgers, you know, I think that'll be sorted out by the market over time. I think a lot of them are equity-like at the moment, that for lack of a better word, securities or sec adjacent to securities, that kind of thing. And there's a room for that. Um, but I, I do think, yeah, a lot of this happens when when tech people and money people kind of talk past each other. I would agree with all of that. Or Go ahead, Jordan. I want to hear your, your thoughts on this. Then I'll... I mean, you know, both Lynn and I are, are more money people. I think uh, we both kind of approach the asset from an investment standpoint and looking for kind of like the portfolio construction. And that was also like my initial kind of foray into, into like the space. Um, 
So we're not talking past each other in that sense. Like we're, we're very much aligned. I think uh, it is a spectrum though. Like people are not just like zero or one. They're, you know, even you can, you can see like now within like the Bitcoin ranks and Bitcoin people are like more money than, than tech, which are usually on Ethereum. But even within the Bitcoin community, there's, there's like different opinions. And like, you know, you have Udi and, and Eric Wall on one side, uh, you know, wanting a lot more, a lot more kind of creative. And, and to, to be honest, like I kind of, I, I love that kind of more, uh, giving some cultural creativity to the whole space and let, let us examine what is this because it is a social construct. The people who are very uh, dogmatic about, you know, what this is, uh, forget that, you know, it's changed multiple times. It was envisioned in one way, keeps adapting and we have to be kind of more flexible and more fluid with it. I mean, you see even like even Michael Saylor is kind of okay with what's currently happening. I guess maybe, maybe he's happy with, uh, you know, miners getting getting more rewards and, and maybe that's, uh, that's fucking his bag. Who knows? But uh, in, a, in a way, like uh, everyone is looking at it from a different angle and we have to accept that there is no fundamentally like um, objective way to look at it. Nothing is objective with Bitcoin. Right. Right. So if there are use cases that can make use of this asset, I think it's actually great. Like you should be able to use, at least use your savings account as a collateral, um, you know, to get loans or maybe like, Maybe there's some version of DAI where you you know you, you secure it with Bitcoin and there's some kind of stable version. Maybe there's other things we could do on like layer twos, like uh, you know zk rollups or something like that in the future. I think that's definitely like an interesting path, and it does seem that Bitcoin potentially could secure uh, rollups like that. Um, so we have to kind of accept that um, there's a fluidity to the situation. It's not as clean as we would like. And we have to adapt and Bitcoin does have to adapt. And it's very possible that as computing increases, um, you know, the current uh, security model of, uh, I'm not talking about like the uh, mining security, but just the actual cryptographic security might need to have some adaption, right? Like if computers get really powerful um, and they can crack the, the kind of, uh, uh, you know, private key, public keys right. that we have right now, we might have to change the code, right? And like do like, quite a hard fork on, on that side. So, um, I think social consensus is the most important. I think that's my only pushback to Lynn, to Lynn, what you said, which is like the world is big enough for, for both of them. Um, true, but a chain, like uh, a network is only big enough for one of them. Um, you can't, and, and the reason for that is because of social consensus and branding. And it's like, even if you are a company with a hundred thousand people, for example, like a huge, huge company, you only usually get if you look at this from like a marketer's lens, like one or maybe two words to describe your company, like you can't, you can't have it all. And, um, and if you're like a stock, uh, you, you only, you only get one or two words to describe it. And so like my concern with Bitcoin, like I, I love Bitcoin. I love Bitcoin as digital gold. I love Bitcoin as like what you were saying with like Germany moving gold. Like I love Bitcoin as digital gold. I don't like Bitcoin as like trying to do DeFi because they're not going to be able to do DeFi as well as like Ethereum is doing DeFi. Um, and that's where, and I think if you're like, let's say an institutional allocator, next bull market happens and you're looking at the industry and trying to allocate capital. Like if it's like, I'm in, I'm in, I think you're, if you can make like two investments, you invest in tech crypto, that's Ethereum. You invest in money crypto, that's Bitcoin. But now that Bitcoin's trying to do like DeFi and things like that, I think it's like, I don't know. It just makes that less clear. Um, from an investment angle. I'm, I'm just curious how you think about that, Lynn. Well, one thing I would point out is that they're both 
well, one, I would say that Bitcoin's not trying to do anything because Bitcoin is just a protocol. So some people on top of Bitcoin are trying to do something with it. It's not like the mm-hmm. developers, you know, were like, hey, let's do this change True. to do DeFi. True. So yeah. Bitcoin just is, and we build on top of it. Um, so that's number one. Number two is that in some way, if you look at, say, Bitcoin and Ethereum, they're both, uh, there's developers on both trying to cross over. So Ethereum's got their ultrasound money meme, uh, for example, where they're saying, hey, we are this programmable thing that's also ultrasound money. Um, and then you have Bitcoin, which from the beginning has been money. And then there's some, you know, for a while now, there's, there's been, you know, ever since, you know, OmniLayer and things like that, there's been efforts to, you know, put more complex programmability on top of layers on Bitcoin. And so I actually think that the investment thesis is still very clear, that basically if someone uh, appreciates the immutability of proof of work uh, and kind of the, you know, the the kind of the long-term just, um, you know, verification of proof of work uh, and they say, okay, what is the, what is the, the network that has the most proof of work and that has small nodes that users can run rather than relying on, you know, third parties to, to get their transactions into the, the blockchain or to initiate them, I should say. Um, then Bitcoin is, there's no competitor anywhere close to Bitcoin mm-hmm. in that regard. Um, now, when you look at the, at the DeFi landscape, I mean, right now Ethereum dominates it. There's obviously in this last bull market, there were all sorts of, um, you know, L1s that made different trade-offs. Uh, generally, they sacrifice some degree of further decentralization in order to have more throughput, lower fees, uh, different, you know, different models like that. Um, and so, I, you know, I think that from an institutional allocation standpoint, I think the thesis is still pretty clear for these types of assets. I don't, I, you know, I think that there's always some degree of crossover, um, but I, I think it's pretty clear. And I think that, I, I think a main thing that if I were to argue that the tech people miss compared to what some of the money people see um, is that the money angle is such a big market when you look globally. Um, that basically that there are a lot of people around the world that want better money. Billions of people want better money. Um, and that that's not a small market. Even if it's just gold, if it's, if it's gold that's available to everybody on a smartphone, you know, that can be twice gold. 10 times gold, right? Times gold. And then yeah. if it's, yeah, 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 and if it's also gold with layers built on top of it with other stuff, who knows, lightning or, or side chains and things like that, that also allows for payments, which we have now to some degree, uh, then that's even a bigger idea. And I think that that is still a completely underappreciated mm. market size. Yeah, um, I, I then, want to push back you know, against like, this idea that like DeFi on Bitcoin can't be as good. And I agree on the programmability side. It's obviously like, you know, uh, less flexible in, in certain ways than Ethereum or, you know, some of the other newer chains. But the more important thing on DeFi is TVL, right? Like if you have uh, a Uniswap clone right. that doesn't have any money in it and you have right. huge slippage and you can't do anything, you can't do any substantial activity, then it's useless, right? So above like programmability is like how much TVL do you have? And if the thesis is correct that this is the better form of money and it's 10 times gold, then the TVL is going to be here. And if the TVL is there, forget like, you know, you can't do like all these complex smart contracts that are, maybe you can actually like, you know, on ZK, who knows what you can do. But even if you can't, with just having a ton of like people's wealth held in this asset, you should be able to use it in some financial way. Like DeFi, just in the general sense of, like I said, use it for for collateral, you know, uh, get a house and you use like Bitcoin to, uh, 
you know, provide some security for the mortgage uh, provider or, um, you know, a lot of kind of basic things that you might still want to do with it. And um, it being, you know, such a huge monetary asset should have some use cases, I think. I think both those are phenomenal points. Yeah, I, I, I very much agree with both of those. Um, before we started recording, you were talking about this like derivatives take that I, I'll be honest, I was not really following. Can you explain what you were talking about there? <laughs> like the there's this whole other bear case uh, that maybe Ari has written a paper about. Can you can you explain this? Yeah, I mean, uh, reluctantly because you know some people are actually <laughs> about this. I, I'm personally not concerned about this, so I'm happy to talk about this. But you know, when we look at, at attack vectors, like we actually should be more specific about you know, their security and we can put a dollar amount on like how much, uh, you know, the, the equipment costs and how much miners getting paid, but we should look at specific attack vectors and what do those mean? And why would somebody attack? Right. And one of the reasons they would attack is they want to make money, right? There's like a financial incentive to attack and you start thinking, okay, how would somebody make money by attacking? And, uh, you know, there's like the double spend, for example, they, they'll, they'll do some, ways to like, you know, send Bitcoin and then cash it out and send it again. And, and you know, they kind of re reorg uh, the chain. So I think Antonopoulos has like talked about that. And there's some great clips of him uh, talking about that specific attack vector. So it's not worth getting into right now. I think there, there's uh, better people to, to speak about why that's not necessarily a huge concern. Um, another concern is like somebody can make it unusable. Like they can just, you know, buy all the block space, take control of the block space, not let transactions get through. And then it becomes kind of like a, a frozen chain, right? Like it becomes frozen in time. Even if like social consensus knows what coins everybody has, they can't actually use it as a settlement layer. So uh, how can somebody make money on this? Well, potentially they do a lot of shorting. They they kind of short derivatives. They the derivatives market is, is always much, much, much bigger than the spot market, right? You can do like 10 X, you, you can, you can do like huge derivatives uh, bets and somebody might potentially, you know, bet billions and billions of dollars that Bitcoin is going to go down short it in different ways. Uh, they can borrow it and then sell it and, you know, try to rebuy it cheaper, et cetera. So um, this is another, another attack vector. I think making the chain unusable uh, and trying to short derivatives for me is not a real attack vector. And I just want to kind of point out why. Um, we'll all see as social consensus, as I'm talking about, that this is happening. We'll all see that the Bitcoin chain has become unusable. And it'll be pretty clear that someone is financially kind of shorting. And as we've seen with, uh, you know, GameStop and like other times, when a gang uh, of like uh, people around the world realize that someone is really short, um, there's, there's like a huge short squeeze possible and people can just buy the price and kind of try to squeeze somebody out of, uh, of a short position and just, you know, make, make the opposite happen. Um, and there are like large financial actors that can coordinate such, such a squeeze. So, um, yeah, like the, the attack vectors, I would say are, uh, maybe not financially related that the ones that I'm concerned about are more, um, kind of state related. Like you saw Hillary Clinton recently talk about how, you know, Bitcoin is, is potentially this big threat, right? Like they're already kind of seeing it as a threat to the dollar and to the U S government and to like the U the U S power. So, uh, those type of threats I think are, uh, more dangerous where it's, it's done just purely to, to disrupt the system and not so much for monetary gain. Hmm. I would agree that the state attacks are a bigger concern than financial attacks. Uh, you know, uh, in addition to the 
uh, what he pointed out of, of being able to squeeze um, derivatives attackers. I would also point out that because there's a real world component here, um, some financial analysts um, are easy to kind of like theory craft things. Whereas if you actually look at it from an engineering perspective, it's like 10x harder than they think. So for example, you can say, well, you know, you could do a massive derivatives position and then buy a 51% of the hash rate and then, you know, send to the network and then, cat, you know, whatever the steps may be for the specific attack. But if you look at actually what it takes to get 51% of the network, um, you know, even if the total amount of ASICs are only worth a few billion, you know, you have to like, so for, for example, when the, when the chiding, China ban happened and like, you know, big U.S. mining corporations, they bought a lot of ASICs, um, you know, Marathon, for example, bought a ton and they were, they were setting up all their facilities and then they ended up, you know, they had frictions getting those facilities in place. Um, and so they actually had like miners sitting in like warehouses for a while because they just didn't have the, they didn't have the data center infrastructure to get them plugged in properly. I think when you actually look at, when you look at what it takes to like acquire or build out you know, the property rights, the, the data center, the power agreements, and then the ASICs themselves in order to amount any sort of sustained attack on the network in order to, to you know, benefit a, a derivatives position is harder than financial theory crafting would suggest. I think that there's mm -hmm. countless frictions you'd run into, and it would very likely be visible to the network ahead of time. It'd be hard to do that in secret, even if you somehow could pull it off. And so that, you know, that's another reason I would just, I would, you know, for the most part, not be concerned about derivatives attacks. And then as far as, yes, data attacks, I think are more of a concern. And then you can look at it, you know, what if, um, you know, all of the institutional proof of stake coins were confiscated and then put into validators, right? There'd have to be some sort of network response against that. Um, I think confiscation of miners, you know, that is another risk, uh, you know, back when, when China attacked it, you know, one of the valid concerns, what if they just take all the miners and, and try to attack the network, for example? Um, what if the United States one day tries to do it? I think nation state attacks are more, you know, valid concerns to to kind of theory craft around than, than mm. derivatives attacks. I, th I think you're uh, I think you, you're giving the government too much credit. That seems like too complex of a thing for uh, for them to I execute agree. on. Yeah, that's why it hasn't <laughs> happened. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, one thing actually from our earlier conversation about block space, you guys have me thinking is um, like one, one of the things you've seen in the last, one of the things you've seen recently with Ethereum is a lot of proposals that help Ethereum manage the demand for block space. And if Bitcoin continues down this route, um, Bitcoin is also going to have to learn how to manage the demand for its block space in similar ways that other chains have, such as, you know, I'm thinking about like EIP 1559 dynamic block sizes or like EIP 4844, uh, the ephemeral data blob thing um like mev markets are we is this when you think about like the next couple of years for bitcoin is this kind of the path that we go down you're going to start seeing these like i don't know like we, we all saw how crazy the the block size the, the block wars were in in 2017 like what's how do you think about bitcoin strategy for 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 managing the demand for its blocks uh for its block space is that at me or Jordy. Either one. Yeah. Whoever wants to take this one. <laughs> Jordy, one. you want it? Uh, <laughs> um, tough question. Um, so I, I think uh, right now, obviously, you're seeing a lot of people that are discontent with not being able to, you know, get a transaction through when people are, uh, you know, spamming the network with all kinds of other coins and uh, images and things. Um, 
you know, there'll have to be some kind of solution at some point. Either they'll segment the block space in, in certain ways or um, maybe create some kind of roll-up where certain things happen and that's kind of how they can maybe get checked into the to the base layer. Um, I don't know. Like, in a way, it's okay if people want to, like, pimp their Satoshis, like they have individual Satoshis and they want to pimp them out in a certain way and, and give them some, some extra, <laughs> uh, like, value or, uh, you know, creativity around it. Um, but... Hmm. Well, you know, we'll have to see, like, if this is still a problem in, in a year or two years. Like, this this could be kind of like a, a short-term um, idea. It, it's it's still unclear, right? It, it's very new. I have, I have a prediction for, for you guys, which is, uh, and, and then, Lynn, I want, I want to hear your thought on that, too. But I think that the block size war scarred so many people from introducing, like, some of these proposals that, that it actually won't happen. And, and maybe it shouldn't even happen, by the way. But uh, I do think one thing that we'll see maybe not this year, but probably next year is some sort of L2 on Ethereum where all of the fees are actually paid in Bitcoin and which actually uses Bitcoin as the data availability layer instead of Ethereum. And I think that could be like a really, that would be a really interesting thing from a tech lens, but also from a social consensus lens of like Bitcoin and Ethereum kind of working together. I don't know. That's something that would be an interesting experiment to try out. Lynn, I interrupted you though. I want to hear your your thoughts on this yeah i was gonna say i think i think fees will sort it out and i think that const so constraints are kind of the source for creativity right when, when when designers have constraints to work around that's that's where innovation tends to happen and you know for a while people said why isn't there more uh layer two activity on bitcoin and it's it's like well why would there be when base layer transactions are like 75 cents um and most people prefer to hodl their bitcoin rather than actively spend it right so you'd have basically small L2s for people that actually want to use that, like let's say you want to do more frequent payments with Lightning uh, and things like that, Th that existed. It was increasingly a vibrant thing. Uh, but compared to the size of the base layer, L2s have been small. And that's partially because there's been no no constraint, that there's there's been very little mm -hmm. fee pressure in most times. And the brief periods we actually had fee pressure, like before SegWit um, and, and now, uh, those are generally catalysts for change. We've already seen, you know, more exchanges announced they're going to use Lightning. More exchanges announced that they're going to batch transactions better. Um, we've had some of these um, Bitcoin exchanges or brokers um, announce new ways uh, aside from Lightning. You know, basically, basically all sorts of ways to buy Bitcoin, withdraw Bitcoin, things like that. Um, and that's in response to fees. And you know, obviously, fee spikes cause those changes. But also, if there were a gradual period of just, you know, if, if adoption goes up three x, and we've already kind of you know, made a lot of efficient use of block space, and now there's just a more sustained fee market from that point, let's say, you know, five years from now, uh, then that creates another set of incentives that basically incentivizes more L2 development. Um, and so I, I think that the, the incentives and the foundation are already there. Um, and that's why I, you know, e even I, you know, I, I do some venture capital in the space that I'm, I'm funding some scaling solutions as well. Uh, and funding some privacy solutions because we've seen obviously there's been challenges to to privacy um, over the past few years, including on top of Bitcoin and ways to make Bitcoin more private. It's also been challenged on Ethereum with the sanctioning of Tornado Cash, um, and so you know I'm I'm personally uh, funding types of scaling and um, privacy solutions, and the and this was before the current fee spike. So this this fee spike is just yet another kind of reason I can point to to why those things have to exist. 
and they might be uninteresting to people during periods of low fees, but then they become a lot more interesting during periods of high fees. Um, I think one other thing I'll point out is, you know, lost in discussion is often, you know, that node, the ability to run a node is a key part of security. You know, if you can't run a node, then you're reliant on third-party node operators. And if, if that's kind of a challenging mm. and network effect type thing, and there's only a few big providers, it's easy for, th for them to be sanctioned, controlled. It's hard for uh, people other than very, very power users to interact with the network in a, in a you know, super uncensored way. And so when you look at, say, Ethereum, you know, there's something like, you know, less than like 7,000 visible nodes. Um, if you look at the percentage of those that are actually hosted, like on Amazon and things like that, it's most of them. So there's less than 3,000, like, nodes that are not hosted on these, like, cloud providers. Uh, Ethereum nodes are also too big to run over Tor. So we actually have a, probably more visibility into the actual number of nodes out there. Whereas when you look at Bitcoin, there's like 17,000 visible nodes. There's un it's unclear how many nodes there are. They're not visible because you can run Bitcoin nodes in those more private ways using Tor and things like that. Um, and so, you know, I think that the ability to even 10 years from now or 20 years from now, if we're talking about long-term security, we also have to talk about the long-term viability of how many nodes there are, both in terms of decentralization of the network, but then also from a practical standpoint, if you if you, mm -hmm. you know, if you just want to interact with the network as privately and as censorship resistant as possible, being able to use a node is, is kind of a, one of the key parts of that. And in addition to the the other layer of whether miners or validators are able to actually censor the the you know the network itself. Hmm. Any other? I have a couple like macro related Bitcoin questions. Um, so maybe we could transition to that as we think about wrapping this up. But any anything else that you think is important to cover on the like block space, ordinals, BRC twenties, uh, security part of the conversation? I mean, just the one thing I want to reiterate is that I think. Uh, taking a very binary stance that, you know, this is what Bitcoin is. It's very clearly defined and this like very pure maxi approach um, is being shown as what it is, which is not sustainable. Like things change over time. People have slightly different opinions about slightly different things. And like even Michael Saylor is kind of taking a different stance than a lot of the other maxis. I think having that uh, visibility is probably good overall. It, it kind of creates a more realistic environment where we try to find social consensus. And um, in that sense, I, I'm, you know, I'm quite pleased that we're, we're seeing some of these assumptions get questioned and some of the um, like memes and, and kind of, you know, repeated arguments um, that a certain subsection of uh, Bitcoin holders were kind of kept like uh, repeating over and over again and, and kind of trying to present this as being the truth. Uh, are not a base truth. And there's a lot of Bitcoin holders, and I know a lot of Bitcoin holders around the world that I meet with and talk with that don't share those kind of default uh, views of like, you know, the, let's just call them like the the sponsored podcasts by, you know, by like the same companies and, and, the, and the same kind of like few, few people. Um, so, you know, I'm looking forward to, as Lynn said, over time, seeing, you know, what things come out and even on, on the venture space and scaling solutions and, and other ideas. And uh, I think it's generally positive what's happening. One, one, um, and I don't, I don't disagree with that, but one, one addition I would make to that is that one trap we fall into a lot is that we exaggerate the importance of loud groups on say Twitter, 
right? And that, mm. that, let's say put Bitcoin aside. That just happens in politics, right? You know, you like you see like Bill Maher, you, despite his scale, there'll be like a couple angry people on Twitter, and he like that's he's he's fine tuned to overreact to something like that. And, <laughs> and people, are, you know, the loudest people capture the most. They have the they have the biggest microphone. And so, you know, when it comes to Bitcoin, like, you know, tr say Troy Cross just did a poll um, about, you know, this usage of block space um, and, you know, what to, what to determine what is spam or what is a viable usage of block space. And 80% of the results said that, you know, the basically the, the market, the fee market. Um, and, and that, you know, it wasn't, wasn't people trying, oh, no, this is the only viable use of block space. The, the, by far the majority answer was basically whatever people pay for. Um, and so I think, you know, if you if you factor out a couple hundred people on Twitter, that's that's really not that's that's like the tip of the iceberg of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is this iceberg under the surface around the world, uh, you know, countries all over the place, people that are all very different than each other that have you know certain shared interests in the technology, and you know even even I think those people are still a valuable role. I mean, a lot of them played a key role I think in in Bitcoin's immutability. I think dis disagreeableness is a the, especially the best kind of disagreeableness is a part of network defense. Um, and mm. I think the technology in some ways, the fact that you can run your own node and that if someone wants to change the code and you're like, well, you're not going to change my node. And then so the, the burden of proof or the burden of difficulty is always on people that want to change the code, right? Which means that if you are super, if you can do something so good that like most people want to change to it, uh, especially with like a soft fork, you can. Um, but otherwise, it, it's the the default status is immutability, and uh, you know I think that balance is struck right. That there's going to be loud people. I think they are useful, um, but they shouldn't be thought of as Bitcoin. That that's one that's one segment of Bitcoin, and there's a you know there's millions of people around the world that interact with Bitcoin in some way or another. Very well said, Lynn. Yeah, I I, I completely agree with that. Um, couple macro related Bitcoin questions before we wrap this. Uh, do both of you think that, I guess this is kind of a layered question here, but uh, would, would, would you say that bank, the banking failures are priced into Bitcoin right now? I mean, I think Bitcoin and, and ETH as well, I think both of them are extremely undervalued for, you know, the potential that they have. And um, I think there was, there's going to be a huge supply squeeze on, on both of those assets at some point. Uh, so I don't I don't think that the current price reflects uh, a fair value. Like if you're looking at like kind of like a five year horizon for both of those assets. Um, and in terms of the banking crisis, you know we're seeing a bit in gold in general. Um, I think that bid makes sense. I, I see Bitcoin as kind of different than gold. I see gold as being the game that central banks play with each other to kind of coordinate. You know who, who has wealth. Um, it's not a retail game. And I think Bitcoin is more uh, the retail version. So gold has its use, you know, it's it's a, like Lynn described before, it's a terrible thing for actually sending around the world. It's only for nation states that are trying to, you know, deal with like huge uh, foreign reserves and kind of try to keep a ledger of those foreign reserves. It's great for that. Um, but for like normal humans, I think Bitcoin is is a different version. And, it, and, it, and it's not digital gold. It's just a human version of gold. It's a retail version of gold. Um, so I think there is a lot more that will happen in the Bitcoin space as people start looking for this alternative over over like the next years. Yeah, I agree. I, and I think the, the so the bank 
crashing narrative um, is decent for for Bitcoin uh, and gold and, and you know things like that. Um, you know, I think possibly the boring answer is that you know the bank um, crashes, the bank issues. Uh, changed market expectations of the the Fed's forward level of hawkishness, so the forward expectations of what they're going to hike rates to, um, and when those flatline or go down, uh, that is generally a positive catalyst for various anti-dollar or anti-rate trades, which includes Bitcoin, gold, other cryptos to varying degrees, tech stocks, you know, long duration, uh, high valuation tech stocks. Um, those all some de- varying degrees got a bid um, based on the fact that people started to assess the banking system as a as a potential constraint for how hawkish the Fed can be uh, in their inflation fight. So I think that's that's a, a key macro thing that doesn't cleanly fit into that narrative, but it still is adjacent to the narrative um, because you know if you if someone believes that the Fed can get back get back to a period of positive real rates for the next ten years, then the the attractiveness especially in, in the United States for you know, other assets, decreases by some marginal percentage. Um, and you just say, well, I can hold T-bills and, and you know, I'll, I'll sustain my purchasing power. Uh, but if your macro view is that there's so much debt in the system and, and other adjacent problems and that they're unable to get back to a sustained period of positive real yields, that they might be able to do it for periods of time like they technically are right now, but that they're unable to sustain that, then the, you know, the case for alternative assets um, goes up. And so, um, you know, the bank failures play into it directly, but then it's, you know, it also adds adds to there as well. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when it comes to the sovereign layer, I think, you know, so gold is attractive um, as a off the, you know, for lack of a better word, off the grid asset for people that really want, say, disaster insurance, if they're afraid the power is going to go out and they want some gold. Uh, It's good for sovereigns uh, if they don't want to be able to have one country like the United States just like shut off their reserves, for example, or inflate their reserves. Um, so I think, you know, gold attractive in that sense. You know, the thing about Bitcoin, and again, this goes back to my prior point about the total adjustable market of a good money. Um, right now, Bitcoin's really too small for sovereigns to really be able to use it effectively. I mean, you know, oil, the oil market is, you know, two or three trillion dollars a year. Um, you know, even even gold has trouble kind of um being big enough for that market to settle, you know, between countries and things like that, let alone other types of trade. Bitcoin is still a small and volatile market. And it's just one of those things, like if, if people can bid up Bitcoin and adopt Bitcoin at 2x, 5x or 10x what they have now, and it becomes a bigger, uh, more widespread, more liquid, less volatile market, then the sovereigns can get more involved. We already see, I mean, the Kingdom of Bhutan is mining it and El Salvador is doing their thing. I mean, around the margins, you see, you know, smaller players that are more nimble, perhaps, uh, or more out of the core of the system get interested in it. Um, But the thing about money is that the more it's accepted or the more liquid it is, the more desirable it is. And so you kind of have up to a certain point that flywheel. And Mm -hmm. so I still think people underestimate the total adjustable market of good money. Hmm. Agree. Um, Bitcoin having is in about a year from now. It's like April or maybe May, tw- probably end of April 2024. If you think back to what feels like yesterday, but was three years ago, the the last Bitcoin having, uh, kind of right right as COVID was kicking off. Um, I think it was like May 2020. It took about six months for the market to really start ripping. So when the market really started pumping, was like. I think it was like November or December of 2020. 
Um, you had like some DeFi summer action, but like for like the big stuff to really start booming, um, I think it was like November or, or December of 2020, if I remember correctly. So if you apply the like super left bell curve take, which is okay, next ne uh, the, the the next uh, Bitcoin having is April of 2024. Six months after that is like October, maybe it's November 2024, and that kicks off uh, this bull market, which like rips us into 2025. That's the like very left bell curve uh, take on like how to assess when the next bull market is going to happen. I'm curious how you guys think about that. I mean, there's, there's two parts, right? Like there's the initial part, which is like the six months before where the, the kind of speculators mm -hmm. already anticipate that there's going to be a price rise. And then there's the reality, which is that there's like less selling demand because there's like, you know, miners get less. Uh, and that's, that's kind of like the part that you mentioned the most, but I think the, the first part, the kind of lead in uh, can see a lot of, like big price action. Um, I think we're going to see it again. This happening, my kind of uh, clues about it are even like the Litecoin happening that's just kind of like going on a bit early now. It already had a very clear kind of move uh, based around around the happening timeline. So if that can have it, and it, you know, I think that's kind of like a niche kind of side asset at this so point. Litecoin is still around? This is a still, uh, we're still doing Litecoin stuff? <laughs> We're still doing it. I mean, there's there's still uh, there's still some people playing that game. So um, there's a lot more Bitcoin uh, holders than there were four years ago. Right now, yeah. uh, you know, after COVID, and I think we're, we are going to see um, both the, the pre-pump, which is kind of like this purely speculative. You know, this, everyone's going to be uh, talking about the happening. So let's buy in anticipation of that. Uh, I think that that will work. Um, and then, you know, potentially there will be a, uh, a bit of, a bit more of a supply squeeze after it is true that every time there's a happening, the effect diminishes just because like, you know, uh, as a percentage, um, you go from 4% to 2%, that's 2% uh, reduction in supply, but you go from two to one, that's only a 1% reduction. I think it's still at this point, uh, it's still going to be significant, maybe not in eight years, but I think, I think this time around it, it still will be. Hmm. I agree. I mean, one way to quantify it, I mean, you know, something like 900 Bitcoins are produced a day. So at $30,000 Bitcoin, that takes $27 million worth of, um, you know, new capital that wants to, to find a home, either the miners themselves just holding it or new buyers coming in if the miners are selling what they mine. Um, and when you, when you, if you have the same price and you cut the supply in half, that reduces the amount of new capital that needs to come in. So if the same amount of capital is still coming in, um, that has a upward, upward force on price. Um, and I think that I think the having is plays a key. It has a well. One is he pointed out it's the narrative. Number two, it, it sets I think a higher floor, um, and it, you know it helps squeeze the price. And then you have that another wave of adoption, and people say, oh, wait, this thing didn't die yet, and then they get in, and you know it's it's around for another cycle, and more people know it, more people use it, more people listen to podcasts, more people read about it, um, and more people kind of you know change their view on it, um, and then it takes a a lower level of um you know new sustaining capital in order to set a higher floor in the next bear market um the, the one part where i think the having is is maybe overdone as a concept is that you know i for the past few years um i've done analysis on what drives bitcoin price and you know what while obviously the having is important over the long term um it's not the thing i find is most correlated with bitcoin price um, i generally mm -hmm. find that various liquidity indicators are better correlated with Bitcoin price. Um, 
And if you if you look at say the purchasing managers index, which is like a rate of change measure of, of the economy, um, Bitcoin is more correlated with that uh, than the having. Uh, that's roughly a three year cycle, um, and so is liquidity. Liquidity cycles in, in in recent era have been more or less three year cycles. They kind of correspond with that PMI, and so it's really easy to kind of mistake a three year cycle and a four year cycle and wonder wh- which is actually driving price. Wait, Lynn, what um, what I, what is that? The index there, the P, what is the PMI? Purchasers Managers Pur- Index? Purchasing Managers Index. It's basically the, these surveys that have been done for, for decades. Um, it looks like a sine wave over time. And mm-hmm. when it's above 50, it means the economy is accelerating. The higher it is above 50, the, the faster it's accelerating. And the mm-hmm. cool thing about that is it's not just are you growing or contracting, it's it's are you decelerating? Like you're still growing, but you're growing at a decelerating rate. Um, and so that, that sine wave, that like sine wave of economic growth and acceleration or contraction um, is actually pretty correlated with the Bitcoin price. And then liquidity conditions are heavily correlated with PMI and even front run it. Um, and so if you just simply take global M2, so global broad money, and you denominate it in dollars, so the, the dollar value of global M2, um, and that's obviously mainly determined by how much money printing has happened, how much lending is happening, and then also how strong is the dollar relative to other major currencies. And if you look at that in rate of change terms and map it with Bitcoin price, it's extremely correlated. Um, basically, when 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 global M2 in dollar terms is is ex- increasing rate of change terms, that's generally a, a very positive for Bitcoin. Um, and when that's when that's decreasing, or especially when it's contracting. That's generally not very favorable for Bitcoin, and so the way I tend to phrase is that in the in the near term, let's say any kind of six to twelve to eighteen month period, I think liquidity is one of the biggest factors that drives Bitcoin. Obviously, there's other factors, but liquidity is is a key one. Um, but then that having plays in both in terms of narrative, in terms of how much new supply has to be absorbed by new buyers or existing you know dollar cost averagers, and then it helps set the floor in in the you know the next bear market. Hmm. Jordy, Lynn, any last thoughts before we wrap this up? No, I mean, I think it's I think it's been good to really kind of examine the, these issues from a. I think both both Lynn and I try to be very objective. Um, yeah. You know, we're not just trying to back a certain team. Uh, just trying to look at the facts, and I think it's been really productive. You know, it doesn't make for as good of media when I ask you questions like which camp do you fall into, and you say a little bit of both, kind of in the <laughs> middle. But it does make for a much better conversation. So I, I do appreciate both of your responses to all of this. So Lynn, any, anything else that you're thinking about? Not really. I think we, I think we covered a lot. Um, uh, thanks for everyone for listening. Uh, and hopefully they get, they get something out of this. Yeah. Amazing. We will put links to uh, Jordy and Lynn's Twitter's websites, newsletter links, all, all of that fun stuff, whatever they have to plug, we will put it in the show notes. You can find them there. And yeah, as always, thanks for listening folks. See you next week.